This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for July 28, 2023. I'm Megan Cantwell. First up on this week's show, a look behind the scenes at a collaboration between a social media giant and 17 academics. Host Sarah Crespi speaks with Mike Wagner, an impartial observer for Meta's U.S. 2020 election project, which published three papers this week in science. Next, we have a conversation recorded during the AAAS annual meeting, which took place during the first week of March. I spoke with Silvia Valenzuela-Lamas, a panelist on a session about migrations and exchanges in ancient civilizations. She lays out what type of livestock were dominant throughout ancient Europe. Also this week, the latest in our book series on sex, gender, and science. Host Angela Saini talks with author Amanda Locke-Soir about her book, Envisioning African Intersex, Challenging Colonial and Racist Legacies in South African Medicine. This week, Science published a package of papers focusing on Facebook and Instagram users in the 2020 election. The research was a collaboration between Meta, the social media platform's parent company, and outside academics. In broad strokes, the work looked at the relationship of what users see in their social media feeds and their opinions, beliefs, or even political behavior. You should definitely check out these papers and their results. But today, we have Mike Wagner. He wrote a policy forum on the process how a collaboration like this works of companies and academics, and how it doesn't always work. Hi, Mike. Hi. Let's go into detail, to some extent, about the results from these papers, and then we'll get into the the behind-the-scenes story. To start with, this is a huge, huge data set um, that was used to find both experimental results, where they manipulated what was happening, uh, also observational research. It's a big project. There are uh, 17 papers in the works. Oh, wow. Four of which are coming out now. The very first thing people are going to learn are about what happens when there are platform-based interventions on Facebook. So what people saw in their news feeds on Facebook and Instagram, you know, whether they encountered reshared content and what they saw on platform. Did it reduce polarization? No, it did not. Did it improve political knowledge? No. Removing reshared content might actually reduce political knowledge, it looks like, you know, from these papers that have been released so far. But there's lots of other papers that they're writing. One of these papers looks at data from 208 million users. So this is something that's really looking at a lot of people online. 
That's right. And most of the research, you know, is, is done with uh, consented participants, 75,000 folks participating in experimental analyses, 400,000 participating in at least one of the six waves of surveys they did from August of 2020 through March of 2021. Now we kind of have a feel for the scale of this project. We're talking in a very large number of papers, a very large number of participants, also a lot of authors, both from meta and from different academic institutions, right? That's right. There were uh, 17 outside academics approached for the project that two principal investigators were Talia Stroud at the University of Texas and Josh Tucker at NYU. They asked uh, a bunch of people um, if they wanted to be a part of the project. And every so often they would bring in someone who wasn't initially on the project who, who could help them for the particular problem. And then Meta has uh, dozens of folks working on the project, a set of core research leads, but also engineers and programmers and people in privacy and legal and all, all across the company who've had something to do with the project, although the day-to-day the -day work is done with the meta research leads and the people who are kind of directly supervised by them. Obviously, you have a pretty intimate knowledge of people, their roles, the process here. What is your role? What do you, why do you know so much about this, Mike? I am the, what the project is calling the, the project rapporteur. I am not connected to the outside academics doing the research. And I am not connected to Meta. So neither group pays me or has any financial or, or authoring entanglement with me. And I have been observing their meetings since June of 2020. So I've observed about 350 virtual research meetings, uh, some in-person research meetings. So many Zooms. Oh, my goodness. So many Zooms. Um, about 500 hours of observation. I've done more than 40 interviews with, with Meta researchers staff members of the outside academic team. Um, I've interviewed some former Meta employees to try to learn more about how that company works. I've interviewed social science research funders and some academic experts who were in this broad area of research, but weren't a part of the project to help me think about what to look for. And then I have access to drafts of their working papers and appendices, their chats on this web app called Workplace, uh, project code, drafts of project governing documents, meeting agendas, email correspondence, okay. all this kind of stuff. So it's just been an enormous amount of data. What are you supposed to do with this access, <laughs> with this level of information? What do I do with all this? Yeah, what's it for? It's to help understand how this process worked to see if the outside academic researchers were captured by Meta. So in other words, did, did the researchers do the stuff that they wanted to do or did they do stuff that served Meta's interests? And also to speak to whether this process and this kind of project might be a model for future industry academy collaborations. To answer a question about like intent and like who was in charge is actually very complicated to do. What made you specifically, like how did you being involved in this work come about? I used to be a reporter and then I got a PhD in political science and do research on public opinion, elections, social media, misinformation, civic engagement, all of the kinds of things that the project is trying to study. I knew many of the outside academics uh, socially at, from conferences and research talks and things like that. And I had gone to graduate school with one of the members of the meta team. We were in different departments, but we're in, I think, one, maybe two graduate seminars together back in the early 2000s. And so I was a known commodity in some respect across both teams. I had repertorial experience. I understood what they were up to with the research. That's why I imagine that I was one of the people they were interested in having do this. 
when it comes to the kind of research that's being done here, that's being published here, you know, this is about the 2020 election. But how much of it is about what happened in the 2016 election with social media, with Facebook? Interest in social media's role in American elections and in elections more generally, no matter where they are in the world, really took off on the heels of evidence that the 2016 election in the United States had suspicious and divisive groups targeting folks, especially folks who lived in swing states on Facebook. And so part of what's happening here is Facebook is approaching these outside academics saying, let's try to do all of the kinds of studies we would have wanted to have done ahead of the 2016 election so that we can understand what happened at the 2020 election. And then to have my role be so that there might be some degree of confidence in the findings that it's not interpreted by journalists and academics and the public at large as a self-serving enterprise done by Facebook to highlight the good things about Facebook and minimize the bad things about Facebook. Make sure people understood that this was not just companies studying themselves. Right. That's, I think, one of the main reasons I was in the position I was in. And then the outside academics and the meta researchers also set up a set of other kinds of guardrails um, that they, I think, hope would build confidence in the project. So none of the outside academics are getting paid by meta. All co-authors are credited. The participants for individual level data are providing informed consent, which is not something Facebook had always done in the past with industry academic collaborations. As much data as possible is going to be made available for future scholars uh, publicly. And the outside academics had control rights, which is to say they were in charge of the final way of designing studies and they were in charge of the final interpretations of the analyses that were done. Mm -hmm. So they got to decide what questions were asked that wasn't dictated by meta. They could say this is what we want to do experimentally or the or the survey questions we want to ask. Here's how we want to measure stuff. And the limits were, was it feasible? Like, could engineers actually make it happen? Was there a legal reason that they couldn't do it? Or was there a, an individual privacy of a meta user reason that they couldn't do it? And so those were kind of the blockers. I think some of the outside academics wanted to actually say, well, let's let's actually manipulate how Facebook might do things. And their meta said, no, we're not going to do product development. <laughs> you can you can do some manipulations like you can say, let's which I, which the academics did, you know, let's let's have some people voluntarily deactivate from Facebook and then we'll ask them a bunch of questions over the course of the election and see, you know, how did deactivation on Facebook affect a variety of outcomes. Or I think they had some people who were no longer exposed to algorithmic presentations in their feed. They they changed the uh, the algorithm. Yeah, it, it, whether they saw reshared content. So there were some experiments that altered how existing elements of Facebook operated, but they didn't get to create new ones and see did that lead to better or worse outcomes. I would say that the results here are not an indictment of Facebook and its role in politics, but it's also not like, you know, getting off scot-free that they have no influence or effect on what people you know, what news they're consuming or, you know, how they feel about political candidates. It clearly matters what people see, whether the effect sizes for really kind of notable findings about polarization or belief in misinformation or sharing of misinformation or endorsement of anti-democratic activities. You know, whether those things are tied to Facebook, I think there's less of that, especially in this first round of studies. More cynical folks might view these as a bunch of relatively null results. Like a soft launch. Right. But but again, there's 17 different papers. These are the first experiments. 
But there's lots of other observational work that's being done across a wide variety of topics that people should keep wanting to pay attention to over, over the course of the coming months and, and year. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a long tail here. That's right. Now, your role was, you know, twofold. It was to kind of look inside this collaboration and make sure it was transparent and that no you know, influence was being exerted by the corporation over these independent academics as much as possible. Do you feel like that part of it was successful? I think in some ways it was pretty successful. So the guardrail that gives academics control rights over the research designs and the interpretation of results is one that really builds, I would say, probably the most confidence in what it is that happened here. But it's the case that that Meta set the agenda in a variety of ways that affected how independent the researchers were. And some of that was just related to workflow, right? The first papers we're reading here in science are experiments. And the Meta researchers themselves felt these are the papers that are the least likely to have big effects. And so you could read that as saying Meta pushed to have the first papers be ones where the effects were smaller or non-existent. And you might read that as the biggest splash that we're going to get. The very first thing we hear from this project is nothing too terrible about Meta. Right. Right. And you might interpret that as Meta PR being quite slick and, and that sort of thing. But it's also the case that the experiments were the easiest stuff to analyze. They didn't need new data. They didn't have to come up with a bunch of measures and classifiers and other kinds of really complicated things and bring all that data architecture into the process. They just, they had the experiments. So that was easier and more efficient. So you could also view it from, hey, this has already taken three years. Let's get out the stuff that we can get out. That's kind of the rollout side of things. Was there anything more integral to the research itself that happened? Meta, I would say, also engaged in in some behaviors that weren't always clear to academics. So there was a difference among the academics regarding their interpretation of what they were and weren't allowed to do. So some of the academics, especially those, some of those working on some of the network-related papers, felt that they weren't allowed by Meta to do individual analyses of the follower networks that people have on, on Facebook and Instagram. So in other words, if you want to study social media, you need to study who follows who and how that matters. And some of the academics believed that Meta would not allow them to do that. Another paper related to more behavioral polarization has some network analysis, but not at that fine-grained level. And so meta researchers argue, oh, you could do network stuff. And some of the outside academics said, no, you told us that we couldn't. And so there's a little bit of, of difference of opinion there about some pretty fundamental issues about how social media works. That said, you know, mostly the disagreements they had about what to do were ironed out collaboratively. Meta really wanted this kind of voter information, kind of empowerment study to be done that the academics didn't want to do and didn't do. And so it wasn't that Meta got to dictate what was done. But as one former Meta employee told me, one thing that often happens at Meta is the answer to a question you ask is extraordinarily precise and not at all illuminative. So in other <laughs> words, you, you, might, you might ask a question to say, can I do this? And they'll precisely say, <laughs> you know, they'll say, you can't do that. But they know, because they know how the back end of their system works, you could do nine other things that are really, really close to it. But they might not offer that to the academic. And they might just say, no, you can't do the thing you asked for. Whether that's what meta researchers were doing, I don't know. I observed questions get asked and answered in precise ways, but I don't know if they were holding back about particular things. Um, but it, what I observed is consistent with that explanation, but that doesn't, that's not pure evidence for that situation. Right. Before we get to my last question, you know, I want to kind of 
reiterate that science published these results, we're confident that what is here, you know, was done with integrity and, you know, that these results are important enough to publish. It seems to me from what you've been saying that this process was very transparent and the collaboration worked to some extent for the academics, researchers, as well as meta. But do you feel like this should be a model for collaboration between industry and academics going forward? Do you feel like that that's the conclusion we should reach from this? No, I think perhaps the biggest problem with it is that it worked really well. The scholarship is of high quality. It's transparent. People are going to be able to replicate analyses. The outside academics had the say for what went into the studies and how they are interpreted in the event of disputes. There's another paper coming down the road where it looks like a meta researcher will take their name off of the project. And so there are disagreements, but high quality research, transparently produced, highly professional, like all data have errors, but you can be as confident as possible about what it is we've seen regarding the claims that these papers make. I don't think it's a model for future research. When one side gets to set the agenda of workflow, which Meta got to because they were paying for everything, (laughs) that affects overall researcher independence. When only one side actually gets to physically handle the data, which Meta could, and since the outside academics weren't taking money from Meta and weren't a Meta employee in some way, they couldn't actually have access to the data itself. And so that is a limitation and probably not something you'd want to replicate in future work. All of the folks chosen had a prior connection to Social Science One, a collaborative aspect with with Meta or then Facebook. And so they were already kind of known quantities and they are all from well-resourced universities. Social Science One is a a Harvard-based, I don't even know what it is, a center that like aims to foster collaboration between industry and academics. So that's kind of its purpose, right? Yeah. And and they had piloted research partnerships between academic researchers and Facebook with, I think you could charitably say, were mixed results. But altogether, you feel that more independence is is important when it comes to analyzing platforms of this size and this potential influence on the public. I think so. I, I think more independence on the outside researcher side is important. But I would also say that outside academics don't know what they don't know about how these platforms operate. And there was a huge learning curve for what they could analyze and could just in terms of feasibility, what data Facebook and Instagram collect about their users and what data they don't. All of that stuff requires collaboration with researchers on the inside. And the researchers on the inside are desperate to have their work taken seriously by the outside world and, and don't want it interpreted as self-serving corporate research. And so they they need the outside academic partners to build confidence in the work that they do. And so there needs to be some way for meta researchers or or any social media company researchers to collaborate with outside academics. But for this to be a model, the outsiders need to have unfettered access to the data and need to have more say over workflow. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been my pleasure. Mike Wagner is a professor in the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Journalism and Mass Communication. You can find a link to the policy forum we discussed and the related research at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my talk with Silvia Valenzuela Lamas about the drivers of livestock farming in ancient Europe. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. 
Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. I'm Megan Cantwell, and here with me today is Silvia Valenzuela-Lamas, a tenured scientist at the Spanish National Research Council. She was part of a scientific session at the AAAS annual meeting that centered around migrations and exchanges in ancient civilizations. Silvia's talk specifically centered around the different factors that influenced livestock farming in ancient Europe. Thank you so much for joining me, Silvia. Yeah, thank you. Let's first start with establishing what the time period is here that you were talking about in your session. When did livestock actually become domesticated in Europe? It became um, domesticated in the Neolithic. It's about 10,000 years before present in the Near East. And then little by little, the domestic animals spread towards the West and then all over Europe and, and beyond. Your talk was centered around the Bronze Age, which was around 5,300 years ago, through the Roman Empire, which fell around 1,500 years ago. Throughout this time period, what were the different types of animals that were being reared? It depends on the place because, of course, uh, ecology plays a major role when breeding livestock. So in Northern Europe, we tend to have more cattle. And in the Mediterranean arc, we tend to have more caprines or sheep and goats. But of course, all the domesticates were there. It's just a matter of the frequencies between livestock. In order to reconstruct exactly how the livestock were being raised and what type of livestock were in these areas, you're looking at archaeological remains. What exactly do you find in these excavations that help you inform about what was happening in these areas? Yeah, I'm looking at bones, actual bones and, and teeth that were preserved, so that were discarded after cooking and animal disease. So basically, I'm looking at the garbage of ancient people, trying to figure out what did they eat. And I'm able to tell apart from a cow bone or a pig bone or sheep and goat bone. So my job is to identify all stuff, all animal bones. Throughout time, animals were prepared in different ways, cut in different ways, does that make it tricky sometimes to be able to figure out exactly what type of animal it was or how big it was? It depends on the archaeological site. There are some archaeological sites where the bone fragmentation is very high, so it's difficult to tell the species apart, and then other sites, the preservation is better, so it's easier to know the anatomical part. Imagine we, we have plenty of bones in our, in our body, and each bone has its specific shape depending on the species, because the shape of the bone is adapted to how the animal moves, and the teeth are very specialized depending on what the animal eats. When the bone fragmentation is very high, 
it becomes very difficult sometimes. So there are a number of cases where we need to to say, okay, this is a medium-sized mammal or a large-sized mm-hmm. mammal, but we don't reach to, say, the taxonomical level. After you do this kind of excavation, you have all these remains. What are the different kinds of analyses that you do in the lab to better constrain when these animals were alive, what exactly they were, and where they might have moved or lived? Well, the first step is to classify the anatomical elements by size and um, anatomical bones, so humerus, femur, and so on. The second step is to say the taxonomical level, so the species, whether it's a cow or pig or sheep. Then we take the size of the bones, in particular only the the adults, because the the young it's in the process of uh, growing and it's not significant. But then for adult bones, we can take the size to know whether we have big animals or small animals. We can know the age, the moment they were killed, to reconstruct the kill of patterns by a species. We can see whether there are pathologies related to an injury that left a, a trace on the bone. We record as well the anthropic traces, so the chops and, and burnings produced by humans. We also record the marks produced by so-called post-depositional agents, so carnivores and the weathering. This is when the bone itself is exposed to a lot of sun and dry and then rainy. And I mean, the whole history from the moment the bone was deposited in the archaeological site, from the moment we we record it in, in the lab. And then we can go even further and do some chemical analysis in order to know the diet of the animal uh, using carbon and nitrogen isotopes. And if we want to analyze the mobility patterns, for instance, of uh, the animal, we will select the teeth and do oxygen and strontium isotopes. And of course, we can also do uh, ancient DNA. So the possibilities are huge. In your presentation, you showed these interesting diagrams that were tracking how animal size changed over time in different regions. And that's one of the things you talked about that you can tell, obviously, from the archaeological remains. Could you talk a little bit about that trend, how that changed over time in different regions in Europe? Yeah, we see that in the Neolithic, animals are generally of a large size, especially cattle. Cattle bones show very well this trend of uh, size change over time, more than sheep and goats that are more stable, let's say. But in cows, we see that there is a size decrease from the Neolithic up to the Iron Age. So all Neolithic, Bronze Age, Iron Age, they are becoming smaller and smaller. And then in Roman times, we see a size increase all over Europe. And the interesting fact is that this only happens within the empire, not outside. So this size increase only happened in the conquered territories. Then when the Western Roman Empire fell and collapsed, the size of these cattle decreased again, which is is very interesting because it's not related to a climatic event or it's really related to the degree of specialization and the connectivity in the Roman Empire. So did they raise the livestock differently? What was the reason that they were able to get the sizes to increase? Well, the Iron Age in, in Western Europe was very territorialized. The settlement pattern is characterized by settlements located in hilltops with a lot of fortifications. We are speaking about towers and ditches and very strong walls. So in general, people were living in these fortified settlements. When the Romans conquered, well, mostly the Western Europe, this system changed completely. 
these so-called Opidas fortified settlements, they were abandoned. And people were moved to the urban centers, also to the villae, that are like the specialized farms we, we know today. They specialized either in wine production or olive oil production in Iberia or cattle production, sheep production. So it's a different system. That's interesting. And in general, were the composition of the different livestock that were reared pretty consistent throughout history in these areas? Or did some areas transition from having more cattle dominated or goat dominated to otherwise? Because it was interesting in your presentation, it seemed like initially ecology did kind of shape the decision making for what types of animals they had and that changed a bit over time. Yes, it was. We see this relationship because, uh, between ecology and livestock to be stronger in the Bronze Age. And then through the Iron Age, they become a little bit more specialized, but all the settlements are producing the same. In Iberia, that is the, the place that I know better, they specialized in sheep and goats, and all the settlements are doing the same, whether it's a big city or a small rural farm, they all are, are focusing on caprines and then a bit of pig and then less cattle. But then it changed in Roman times. Mm -hmm. They started to produce more pork and more cattle, and the animals became bigger. Also because Romans were uh, building a lot of infrastructures, like the aqueducts and roads, and they all become part of a big political and economic unit. So the system changed, really. One example I thought was interesting that you highlighted was Italy and how it seemed like, was Italy kind of the only region that mainly had pigs for yes. a while? Why is that? <laughs> I wish I could uh, answer that question because it, it, uh, it starts in, in Etruscan times. They become mad about pigs uh, and, and they account for almost the half of the bone remains we, we recovered in, in the archaeological record. They don't have uh, an explanation other that they made this cultural choice, perhaps to um, distinguish themselves or because they love it and they could afford it. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's really distinctive. It's really different from other cultural groups that we know from the Mediterranean, like the Phoenicians or other indigenous communities. Were there any religious changes that influenced how the livestock composition changed in these areas throughout the period that you're looking at? This is difficult to answer because we don't have written sources, not many, for, for this period. This is something that we see very well for medieval times when we see the Christian communities and Muslim communities and Jewish communities coexisting in, in Iberia. And we can, can recognize them in the archaeological record. It's amazing. For the Iron Age, it's more difficult because we know that the Etruscans were there and Greeks and Phoenicians. But then whether it was a religious thing mm. or a cultural identity, okay. it's difficult to say. I think the part about your research that's so interesting to me, too, is just how interdisciplinary it is. I mean, it's so much history, archaeology, all these different things. What is it like to collaborate with so many different groups of people to put these things together? This is what I love the most of the scientific career, that you are constantly learning things and exchanging ideas with interesting people, especially also with other archaeologists, mm -hmm. because we are all specialized in one is specialized in pottery, another in glass, another in coins, yeah. another in archaeobotanical right. remains. So we need to be all together in, or in order to recreate the, the picture. Thank you so much, Sylvia. You're welcome. <laughs> Up next is the third in our six-part series on books exploring the science of sex and gender. This month, host Angela Saini talks with scholar Amanda Locke-Soir 
about how scientists have historically imagined those who are intersex. Hi there, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and the host of this series of books podcasts. Every month, I interview the author of a book on the very broad theme of sex and gender. Last time, we heard from Dorothy Roberts about reproductive justice. This month, I'm joined by Amanda Locke-Soir, an associate professor of gender, women, and sexuality studies at the University of Washington, Seattle in the United States. We'll be discussing her latest book, Envisioning African Intersex, Challenging Colonial and Racist Legacies in South African Medicine. This is a deeply unsettling read, reminding us that scientific ideas about sex and gender have always been shaped by politics. In South Africa, during the age of European colonization, scientists and physicians, already on the hunt for differences between races, constructed a myth that black South Africans were more likely to be, in their language, hermaphrodites. As Swar writes bluntly, colonists defined inhabitants in Southern Africa through their genitals. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. This is a shocking book, not least for the unashamedly prurient interest that European colonists seem to have had in the bodies of the people whose territories they were colonizing. Why were they so fascinated by sex difference? We can trace a lot of this back to the 1600s, which is pretty amazing when travelers and naturalists were colonizing South Africa in particular, and the ways that they were looking to create difference as part of their civilizing mission. We think a lot about the ways that race was created over time, but I think that the ways that gender was created simultaneously is just as very salient in this time period. And that's part of what was shocking and important for me to trace. And particularly the ways that this interest in creating sex and gender difference really was linked to the body in really, let's say, very disturbing ways that got repeated in so many kinds of contexts from that point forward. What do you mean by disturbing? I would say probably some of the earliest observations included the fact that colonists were suggesting that the genitals and bodies of colonized women were very different and were actually now what we would call intersex or hermaphroditic, were abnormal in all sorts of ways. And maybe we shouldn't be so surprised because we find the same thing when we look at the ways that race was created, but the ways that this happened around genital difference and the falsification of observations of genital difference has really continued and and then got inserted into science and medicine in all sorts of ways. So there was almost an exaggeration of difference, this kind of idea that based on what are sometimes quite cursory observations or limited observations, then gets spun out into a narrative of fundamental difference. I would say it was both an exaggeration and actually a false creation, right? So there was an exaggeration of what white colonial observers saw in Africans' bodies, but it was actually just kind of a, an expectation that those bodies were what they called hermaphroditic or different in all sorts of ways that we can link very clearly to scientific racism and the creation of false ideas about blood, bones, skeletons, all parts of the bodies. 
Where do you first see this idea emerged into European scientific literature or medical literature that non-white, non-European people, and particularly Africans, were fundamentally different in sex and gender characteristics? I mean, I think we can trace it back to the 1600s when there were travelers and colonial observers looking at these kinds of differences. So from this time forward, they were repeated, repeated, repeated in ways that just became, to my mind, like kind of a house of cards that was built on something extremely unstable, that was built on ideas that really had no basis in reality whatsoever. They were observations and drawings that were considered even in the time to be fabricated or imagined ideas of what Black women and African women's bodies would be. But then they became very entrenched and repeated and then inserted into scientific and medical textbooks, into popular culture, into museum representations. Well, you do explain in great detail that this longstanding myth that Black South Africans were more likely to be intersex has been propped up by just a handful of fairly unreliable studies most notably this master's thesis that was written in 1970, which you talk about, which is still being cited despite being unable to prove its own hypothesis. This is how I came to this project was that I did find this master's thesis when I began this work in the 1990s. And what was so shocking to me was that it was making this claim that Black people are more likely to be intersex than white people. And when I looked for the kind of ramifications of this particular master's thesis, I found that up until the present, it continues to be cited. And probably one of the most amazing things to me was that when I looked at the thesis itself, you know, I did a close read of the thesis itself, it actually argues the inverse. It doesn't argue that Black people's bodies are more likely to be intersex. It was a study of about 20,000 live births in Durban in the 1960s and 70s. It actually said in the end that only seven people were suspected to be intersex and that most of those were actually unfounded suspicions. Even the author of this thesis cited his own thesis again and again as proof of this false claim. It became this very odd game of whisper down the lane, right? When you look at what was originally said, this is not the claim that was made, but it really fits so well with what people wanted to believe and with the ideals of the time, that it became something that was just repeated ad infinitum. Well, what's particularly remarkable is we're talking about modern times now. So this is from the 1970s into the present, that people still want to believe something that was invented hundreds of years ago within the scientific community. How is that possible? Part of the way that this happens is the kind of process of citation that happens within science and within academia more broadly, right? Where some people cite it, then more people cite it. And a lot of times people don't go back to the primary or original sources. But I think that this particular idea predates that in the way that we're talking about from the 1600s onward, that colonists and neocolonial ideas were really invested in finding difference. So it was something that they accepted very readily. What was especially unsettling to me about this particular claim was that it didn't stay confined to academia, not in the slightest. It traveled through museum representations where thousands of people a year would observe, for example, a project called the Casting Project, where 
Africans' bodies were cast in plaster and then put on display, but the process of creating those casts was very intentionally intended to suggest and promulgate this kind of myth. So genital features were exaggerated in these casts. In more modern times, the same myth was repeated in popular culture, in documentary films that could now be seen on the Science Channel and TLC and other kinds of documentaries. You use the phrase citational chains to describe how one scientific error can spread through the literature and, as you say, even become mainstream because people keep citing it. Why do you think in particular that has happened so quickly and easily in this case when it comes to intersex? There's always been a lot of mystery that surround intersex. And I think that people don't really know what to make of intersex. So in the absence of talking to folks who are intersex or having other kinds of information, it's very easy to suggest myths and falsehoods and have them accepted. I also think that it's important, and a lot of what my book is doing is really trying to link ideas about intersex to race and the ways that the bodies of people of color are often portrayed in science and medicine as abnormal. You know, we can find in the contemporary moment ideas that black and white bodies must be physically different somehow, even though there's never been any evidence that supports that idea. And of course, we know that there are intersex people all over the world, as we would expect, even if we don't know the exact frequencies. But one observation you make is at the same time as this is happening, as non-white people are being othered in terms of race and gender, white South Africans have felt under pressure to conceal their own intersex children, been discouraged from talking about them because intersex had been framed as an issue affecting other races. I would say it's still a very strong myth. White South Africans are still encouraged to conceal that children might be intersexed or adults, right, might be intersexed and to undertake what doctors have long called corrective procedures to force people's bodies into very clearly male or female expectations. I think intersex folks have been really the the fodder for this kind of debate, have been subjected to this kind of exploitation and these efforts to kind of shore up ideas of white supremacism and cisgender privilege in a lot of ways. Well, as you say, a lot of your work is about the damage we do to people when we seek to classify them, especially the kind of brutal lengths to which scientists and physicians have gone to to make sure people fit into categories or conversely to prove that they don't fit into certain categories. Is the scientific community making any progress on this front? Is there a better way to appreciate human difference? I think there is some progress that's being made. And I think that that's really almost entirely been the result of intersex activism all over the world. In the United States, there's been a lot of progress in trying to have conversations with doctors to really center consent. In South Africa, I've been especially impressed by activist initiatives that have brought doctors into conversation in both trying to make interventions in how medicine can approach intersex but also legally, like how we can outlaw different kinds of procedures or put different kinds of regulations in place that would prevent the kind of medical exploitation and really the kinds of unwanted procedures that have been devastating for intersex people. Activists have really been sharing their stories 
So it's been with the explosion of intersex folks, activists in particular, telling their own stories and really moving away from the secrecy that has surrounded intersex that has really brought the shift that's taking place now that I hope will be continued in the future. Well, this is also an aspect of your book, looking at how community organizers and activists in South Africa have been pushing back and changing narratives. Can you paint a portrait of some of that activism on the ground? Rather than these old narratives where they were kind of excluded, right, where they were painted in very exploitative and pathologizing ways, activists have really been working to paint their own portraits, to represent themselves in videos, to come together in solidarity. There's been an initiative called the African Intersex Movement, in which activists from all over the continent have come together to say, we collectively you know, oppose the kind of exploitation that we've experienced in medicine. We want to prevent that from happening in the future. Here's what happened to us, and here's how we can change the ideas. And a lot of the focus of this has been about reframing norms. And I think that's been really important is to say, our bodies are normal. We're born this way. There's no medical reason to change us. There's no medical reason for different interventions. And reframing the terms of the debate has been very effective in reaching people all over the world. For many listeners, I expect the most high profile intersex person they will have heard of is uh, the athlete, Casta Semenya whose participation in sport has been challenged by those who say she has to artificially lower her natural testosterone levels to fit into what are seen as the acceptable parameters of other women athletes. And you dedicate a chapter to her case. Why is Semenya so important for the story of intersex people around the world? And, and where do you hope that story will go next? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think part of what's made Semenya so well-known and so widespread in her reach is that she really pushed back on the expectation, both that she would be excluded from athletics and that she would be silent about the kinds of treatment that she received, the scrutiny then and testing that she received. She also has been really a bellwether in thinking about the ways that science has failed continually in trying to define sex. So over the past hundred years in sport, science has tried in different ways, multiple different ways. Every decade almost, there's a new way to try to quantify and define sex and what it means to be a woman for competition. And those have always failed. And Semenya has really been at the forefront of this. She's been banned, she's been allowed into sport, and she's been excluded again. And I think that we can also see the way that Semenya has been targeted by sporting regulators and the way that that's really entrenched in a lot of racist ideas in the kinds of regulations, who's considered suspicious in gender testing and who is not claims about the frequency of intersex that I trace back to the 1600s really manifest in contemporary sex testing and in sport. So I think the way that Semenya is pointing us to the future is to say what it means to be a woman has been a moving target and it's been kind of framed through racism and the future is really abandoning all this failed sex testing rethinking sport and rethinking what it means to be a woman in all sorts of broader ways. Professor Amanda Lockswar, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I do just want to mention that 
The book is available for free. I negotiated with Duke to make sure that it was available through open access. So folks are more than welcome to download the book. And if they do choose to purchase it, any proceeds are all donated to Intersex South Africa. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I'm Angela Saini. Next time, I'll be with political scientist Paisley Curra to discuss his book, Sex Is As Sex Does. See you then. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by Sarah Crespi, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.